0: to this very special episode of The Word is Resistance, our 200th episode, yes 200 episodes of exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism, and also the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Darrell J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast ever since the beginning. The word is resistance. We have a treat in store for you today. Several of our folks from our podcast crew are sharing reflections about the psalm offered for this Sunday's lectionary, Psalm 85, verses 8 through 1, or 8 through 13, sorry, and what we've learned through our work on this podcast. What have we learned about ourselves, about the Bible, about white supremacy, and the work we need to do? How has working on this podcast shaped us over time? What do we hope you, our audience, have learned? What commitments do we hope you're holding now? We start off with a gorgeous offering from Blythe Barno. But first, here's the psalm. Again, Psalm 85, verses 8 through 13. Let me hear what the divine will speak. For they will speak peace to their people, to their faithful to those who turn to them in their hearts. Surely the divine's salvation is at hand for those who are in awe of them, that their glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, justice and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and justice will look down from the sky. The divine will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Justice will go before the divine and will make a path for their steps.
1: everyone. My name is Blythe Barno. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm currently living in central Ohio on Kaskaskia, Shawnee, and Hopewell land. I'm so excited to get to pitch in for the 200th episode. I joined the team back in 2017 when I was fresh out of seminary. Those of you who have gone to seminary know that the six months to year after you finish is full of deep uncertainty and discernment, (laughs) and I will be forever grateful that I got scooped into this incredible team. I'd gone into seminary because I saw the way faith communities I'd grown up around had disrespected my family and my loved ones. My mother, who had me when she was 17 and unmarried, had to have me baptized in secret after the church threw her out. I watched as my pastor preached against his sister from the pulpit because she was queer. I saved money to contribute canned goods to the Thanksgiving food drive only to have those same cans show up on my front step that Thursday morning, even though the church had never once spoken directly to me about my circumstance. I watched in horror as a pastor told all those who'd gathered for my ex's funeral that all he would wish for now is that each of us would accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior they stamped his name onto thin copies of the New Testament and passed them out to us. Which is to say that I have known well a church that cares more about propriety than persons, a church that would leave us to suffer so that they could continue to claim the high ground, a church that would exile instead of pausing to sit in the mess of life like their Savior did. So, being the petulant femme I've always been, I decided I'd learn how to hold spiritual space for the people I come from. White working class people, single mothers, survivors, people who use drugs, queers. People who were shamed by systems every day and met that shame with defiance, hard-headed pride, cuss words, and an insistence on respect. They taught me what it meant to be rooted in what I knew to be true about myself. They taught me about my inherent lovability, because if somebody didn't like me, well then fuck them. They taught me that there was something inside me that nobody could ever sully, even if they tried. They called it dignity. I call it divinity. I went to seminary mostly to learn to play defense, to better understand the scripture that had been used against me and those I come from. But somewhere along the way, it became clear that that was too small of a call that God does not just want people buried well, people who are well defended. God wants justice, liberation, and a celebration of that spark of dignity within us. Coming out of seminary, I felt deeply convinced of that, but had no idea how it would actually take shape. This podcast, this team, was one of my first tethers to a ministry that was rooted in resurrection and not in death. By digging into the lectionary, I was able to see how purposefully the Bible had been curated and shaped and weaponized, how white supremacy has been woven into common interpretations and assumptions of scripture. I can see more clearly the way they've tried to turn the Bible into a story about personal salvation, when every story is one of collective effort and care. These distortions are the foundation of the damage and disrespect that was doled out by the churches of my youth. The unspoken standards of American fundamentalism and invisibilized white supremacy are the same. They reinforce one another. Both value purity, individualism, isolation, and perfection. Both call for rigid boundaries and threaten extreme consequence if they're crossed. Both tell us that we're the chosen ones, but only if we work hard and overcome all weakness. This podcast has helped me to expose that lie. But more than that, I found that each week there was something real and honest that could be lifted up to fuel our understanding of dignity, divinity, and purpose. They have not taken it all. They could never take it all because there is something deep inside these teachings that nobody could ever sully, even if they tried. They called it dignity. I call it divinity.
2: Surely God's salvation is at hand for those who fear God, that God's glory may dwell in the land. This is Nicola Torbett, by the way, she, her pronouns. I want to hang out with you all and this verse for a few minutes. As soon as I read the psalm for this week, I was like, oh, this verse is how I can try to get at what I've learned these past four years talking with you all about scripture and collective liberation. Surely God's salvation is at hand. A few years ago I might have said, well that's good, because we sure are in a bind here, so come on in God and clean this mess up. But that's not how I understand a passage like this anymore. I don't think I subscribe anymore to the superhero God who is going to swoop in and save the day. I'm not even sure that I believe God is going to help human beings save the day once and for all, brush the dust off our hands, and we're done. I think that's a fantasy that is in some ways still tethered to supremacist logic, some kind of saviory thing. I sense that there's a kind of alternative in the psalm. Verse 9 says salvation is at hand here, now, for those who fear God. Now, I'm grateful to my Jewish cantor friend, Shira Stanford-Asio, who taught me that fearing God in Hebrew actually means something more like standing in awe before God, or sitting or lying down in awe, if that's what your body can do. In other words, we are saved in awe. We are saved in wonder. We are saved as we orient ourselves in grateful relationship to God and to the redwood tree and the dung beetle and the Milky Way and every single person alive, including people we can't see because they are incarcerated, they're in immigrant detention, they're living under the freeway, or they're on the other side of some border wall. We come to know ourselves in relationship to all of these. We are saved as we feel, deep in our bones, simultaneously how tiny we are relative to this swirling starscape, and how beloved we are, all of us, by the creator of all of it. There's no way to hold on to supremacy thinking in the face of all of this. We come to realize that we know only a little, only what we can see from this tiny spot where we sit. We are saved in humility, the earthy cousin of awe. Humility, the earthy cousin of awe. Salvation is at hand for those who are in awe. This is a really different view of salvation than I used to have. As an organizer, I used to think it was something like this. Those of us who are right. Those of us who, you know, heed God. In other words, those of us who get it who have all the right opinions, who are justice warriors, maybe. We just need to convince all the rest of the people to get it too. Or maybe that's not realistic. Maybe we just need to convince enough of them that we can overpower the rest with our greater numbers, and then poof, salvation will be upon us. But I don't think we can win that way, not in the long term. There's something else that we're being called to instead. We are being called to let go of believing we are right and others are wrong. That in itself is supremacy thinking. We are being invited to sense our rightful size and place in an interdependent universe and to assume it with fierce love and great courage and then to invite others into that with us not out of moralism or self-righteousness, but because we want everyone to know the joy that we have found. Salvation, it seems, is a meat-tenderizing process, not because God wants us wants to give us a pounding, but because the nature of life is fragile, fleeting, vulnerable. The beauty of it can't be separated from the fragility of it. And renouncing supremacy means we come into relationship with shared vulnerability. The calluses are being removed. We are being worked over, gentled, broken open, so that in the words of Flannery O'Connor, nothing human, we might even say nothing alive, is alien to us. Alice Walker says, The way forward is with a broken heart. The psalmist says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is salvation, that we find ourselves joining the crowd of vulnerable humanity without the protections of privilege. I'll say that again. This is salvation, I think. That we find ourselves joining the crowd of vulnerable humanity without the protections of privilege. From our place within the crowd, we glimpse the black freedom fighter, and we are convicted. Not one hair on her head can be harmed. We won't stand for it. We meet the Anishinaabe water protector, and we know we cannot let them be brutalized for the water we all need. We won't stand for it. We see the retired white coal miner, now running himself ragged at the Amazon warehouse, and we can't bear it. We won't stand for it. We are not better than anyone else. We are no one's savior, but we are all bound up in all of it, and it is beautiful, awe-inspiring, precious. This, I think, is God's glory known throughout this land, indigenous land, sovereign, fecund, thriving land. This is our salvation at hand.
3: Amen.
0: This is Reverend Dan am back with you. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, justice and peace will kiss each other. I love this verse from Psalm 85, the joy and intimacy of steadfast love and faithfulness meeting, embracing, justice and peace kissing. This image stirs up in me a longing for a world where those are true, where our work to build that world feels like that, is like that the joy and intimacy of lovers, yes, and also of dear friends and parents and children, of humans and other creatures, humans and other plant beings, tender and sweet, deeply relational, slower, quieter sometimes, sometimes giddy and giggling, embraces, kisses that are sometimes a celebration and sometimes a comfort in our grief. For me, I think this podcast has become a way for me to work through together with you to work through my grief that most of the time, the world doesn't feel like that at all. Didn't start that way. The first few episodes, I'm much more in teacher mode, trying to tell you all the things I think you should know about the texts. And there's some good stuff. And also, it's a lot out of my head. I remember the episode where that changed. It's the Transfiguration episode from February 26, 2017. We were barely over a month into a certain presidency. You know, the one. Terrifying were policies were coming out of D.C. so fast we couldn't keep up. My dear friend had gone into sanctuary and I was supposed to say something about Transfiguration. That was the first time I brought my scared and broken heart to a text and discovered that Jesus was also scared and broken hearted, that the transfiguration, in Matthew anyway, was a response to trauma. Nobody had ever, ever told me that before. Working on that episode, having that realization about Jesus and trauma and movements and heartbreak and fear made a lasting impact on me. Suddenly I could see myself, my people, our movement in these stories in ways I never had before. I could see our struggles, what was beautiful and also so hard about organizing, the deep humanity of embrace and also the deep humanity of betrayal. I shed the need to try to make sense of white Christianity's boxes and definitions and dogmas and worked to try to make sense of the Bible's stories as movement stories as human stories of a people over generations, trying to make sense of imperial violence, trying to find ways to survive that violence, to heal from that violence, trying to find ways, dare they dream, to thrive, trying to figure out what it means to be human in the midst of it all, trying to find the divine in the midst of it all. Organizing, arguing, debating, storytelling, feeding, healing, rebuilding, meaning-making. What are the conditions for a world where everyone is thriving? What happens to our pain? Does our suffering have any meaning at all? In wrestling with these questions, in sinking deep into these sacred stories of communities wrestling with these questions, I have found myself rooting into a legacy that aligns with the kind of world we live in because we're still organizing against empire and the kind of world we are both longing for and are building together. That's not the legacy of the white church, to be honest. I don't know what to call it exactly, that legacy, this soil my roots have grown down into and which has given me nourishment and comfort over these years, the strength to go on and ancestors to talk to. I might call it, I love Jesus so much more now, thanks to doing this podcast. I might call it, this story. In Matthew's transfiguration story, after Jesus finds comfort for his trauma, of course his friends don't want to leave. Matthew says Jesus reaches out and touches them. He touches them. Maybe that touch is an embrace. Maybe that touch is a kiss. He tells them not to be afraid, and together... They continue on the journey to build up a world, a new world. This legacy, I might call it that place where justice and peace kiss.
3: This is Reverend Jean Jeffress. I use she, her, they, them pronouns. As I reflect on Psalm 85 for this 200th episode extravaganza, I feel called to some hard truths and maybe even some confession. In my reading of this psalm, it seems to me that the Psalter writes in the assumption that the people want God to speak. They want God's peace. They're waiting, even ready for God. God to turn their hearts. They're down for God's salvation, open to God's glory in their midst. It seems that the Psalter is affirming that the people are expecting what is good from God, welcoming God's righteousness, so much so that they make a path for God's steps. It sounds fabulous. Where do I sign up? But let's not forget that all of this is for those who fear God, which means, as Nicola reminded us, it's those who stand in awe of God. So all of this gloriousness is not free. It's going to cost you some awe. And that doesn't sound like much, but let me peel the band-aid off. This podcast, as we say in every episode, looks at our scriptures and sacred stories through the lens of racial justice. Looking at this psalm through that lens at this time, I would honestly say That many who consider themselves God's faithful, white people, white Christians, probably would not like to hear God speak on the matter of racial justice. I would honestly say that the cost of our awe is sometimes just too high. What I've learned doing this podcast is that there's a huge difference between speaking on the topic of racial justice from behind my little podcast microphone and laptop than from behind the pulpit. Behind the microphone, I don't have to see the tense faces of the pew-dwellers when I preach through that racial justice lens. I can literally say whatever I want, whatever needs to be said. Working on this podcast over the past couple of years has shown me just how embedded white supremacy is in our churches, how the goodness and niceness of truly wonderful and generous people can be weaponized to uphold some of the most insidious traits of white supremacy. Being nice is never going to dismantle white supremacy. May that veneer, that niceness veneer, be cracked, and may kindness and truth-telling prevail. This podcast has also given me an outlet to be raw, vulnerable, and experimental in my writing and preaching. I listen to podcasts to learn and hear content that I cannot hear elsewhere, My hope is that this podcast is that kind of thing for its listeners. Working on this podcast has taught me where I lack courage in my ministry. I can't pastor from behind my microphone. And as I reflect today, I see where in me, steadfast love and faithfulness still need to meet, and peace and righteousness still need to kiss. Working on this podcast taught me That I stand only a few yards outside of the niceness veneer. I can shield myself with it at any time. I have that privilege. Working on this podcast reveals to me where I am bifurcated, pastor, activist, and that white supremacy is the strongest of tides, against which I pray I never stop swimming. This podcast is a buoy in that effort. The word really is resistance. I pray for all those listening that if there is some way in which your anti-racism, activism, and other parts of your life are separate, may they become one. And I ask all of you for prayers for me for the same. Amen.
4: Greetings friends, I am grateful to add my voice into this celebration of the 200th episode of The Word is Resistance. This is Margaret Ernst, I use she and her pronouns and I live on Lenape territory in the southwest section of the city now known as Philadelphia. Getting to know Jesus and the Bible through The Word is Resistance has meant I've had to face what it means to live in the promises of my theology. I've learned that our interpretations and understandings of Scripture matter deeply, but not in order to be smart or right or superior, but because of what they demand of our lives. When I was little, about eight or nine, I would sit at my grandmother's lap and ask her what she and my grandpa remembered of the civil rights movement. In the 50s and 60s, my grandparents lived just outside of Birmingham, Alabama, and they continued to live there until they died. Looking at pictures from decades before, thousands of miles down south in Birmingham, of pictures of black children my same age being hosed down by police or set on with dogs, of the bombings that took the lives of four young girls at 16th Street Church, I tried to make sense of how my grandparents at that same time were living a few miles away. When I would visit Birmingham, Every summer, I ask my grandma, so what did you do? What do you remember? I always remembered that my grandmother talked about how she hated racism and always wanted to see things change. But what she said when I asked her what she was doing at the time, I'll never forget. She said, honey, we didn't know what was happening. My grandmother explained how the freedom struggle campaigns and the violence that white supremacists were doing downtown and across the state was not covered in their local paper, even though it was being broadcast around the world, and images from Birmingham mobilized people across the country to get involved in the movement. I thought long and hard about this as a young person, and probably always will. I know my grandmother's claim to have not known what was happening in her own city cannot be totally true. In 1962, James Baldwin wrote for us to always be on the lookout for willful ignorance. And I am not above that same kind of willful avoidance every day. But hearing my grandmother taught me that if I wanted my own life to be different, if I wanted to base what was happening in my community beyond my bubble, I had to make choices. I had to consciously change what I pay attention to, where I get my information, who my relationships are with. I had to change how I interact with my world when everything about my upbringing as a white woman had taught me to look away, to just be nice, to not make a fuss and accept how things are and that they're unchangeable. The possibility of those different choices and making that choice clear to each other as white people Is the difference that Jesus makes to me. I wonder sometimes what difference it would have made in my grandmother's life if her pastor or a church member or fellow mom in the neighborhood had made a conscious choice to invite her to take action against racism in Birmingham. I wonder what would have happened if she had been invited in to live her values publicly that she proclaimed privately. My grandma was super sharp-minded who got things done and didn't take any BS and made excellent brown rice with too much butter. She would have been a great member of an organizing team. What if someone had shared their story with her about what was happening downtown, invited her to a meeting, and kept on inviting her, even if she was busy or said she couldn't be bothered? What would have been different in my mother's life in mine? I hope that in listening, whether you found us last week or 200 episodes ago, you have found fuel here for your journey. I hope we have challenged you, inspired you, and sustained you. I hope we have modeled imperfection, honesty, and fortitude. I hope it's made a difference in your own choices, in your commitments, in your actions, in your community, in your leadership of others of the questions that you're willing to ask yourself even when it's risky and uncomfortable, especially when it's hard. Keep going. We can keep going because we can always turn to God to sustain us in all of it. There is a discipline to keeping on choosing to accept how God is loving us and to who God wants us to be, and then from that overflow of love to invite others in the journey with us. Not as people who are worried about being good or moral in our own eyes, but as people caught up in the full aliveness God offers us, our resurrected selves. I've learned from this podcast that the practices of our daily faith, our prayer, our worship, our songs, our seeking spiritual support, and living nurtured in a community of faith within our own Christian communities and beyond the own story of our tradition... These are disciplines of hope to fortify us on our journey towards righteousness, towards justice, and wholeness to the new creation that is coming. After speaking in awe at God's unfailing love, the writer of Psalm 85 asks God directly, in pain and in a vulnerable reaching out Will you not revive us again, God? says the writer of the Psalm. Keep going. Keep coming to the work of racial justice with your full heart and your gifts and your graces and your willingness to grow. Together, let's keep asking our creator, will you not revive us again?
0: is Reverend Dan again to close us out. 200 episodes. I can hardly believe it. We released our very first episode of this podcast on January 15th, 2017. It was the Martin Luther King holiday weekend and just five days before that president, you know the one, was inaugurated. What a time to launch a podcast about anti-racist readings of scripture for white Christians. I'm going to tell you a little secret. It took a long time for me to be able to create an episode without either having to cry or wanting to throw up, or sometimes both. Those first few months, I was all by myself, sending my voice out into the world, saying things sometimes that felt super scary to say out loud. But that changed. One thing that changed was I stopped doing it alone. We have these amazing contributors who bring so much genius each week, and I learn so much from them. And I not only feel less alone, thanks to them, in doing the podcast work, but I also feel less alone in the world. So my huge thanks to them. The other thing that changed was I started imagining y'all out there checking us out each week. I hold you in my mind when I sit down to write the transcript and when I get ready to record. Some of you, I know your names now because you share our episodes or I see your likes on Twitter and SoundCloud. Some of you have been with us since the beginning. All of it, that's pretty amazing, and I want to thank you, whether you're new here or not, for joining in, because you also help me, help us, to feel less alone. At the end of these episodes, you know we always offer at least one call to action. And this week, all I ask is that you share the podcast. Maybe it's this episode, maybe it's another that's your favorite. Share it and tell folks why it matters to you. Kind of like we've done here on this episode. Share it out. And maybe help someone else feel less alone. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good Earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And we'd especially love to hear from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out next week. We're taking a brief break and then are back with a resistance word from Margaret Ernst. You can find out more about surge at surge.org and our podcast lives on SoundCloud search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor, Max Pearl. I haven't counted, but I know Max has edited the vast, vast majority of our episodes. We could not do this without you, Max, so thank you. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world where justice and peace kiss. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Rev. Anne Dunlap.